Welcome to House Calls with Dr. Connie Mariano. If you're ready to get your physical, emotional, and spiritual life in order, join us for the next hour as we meet some interesting people who will share stories of success and wisdom that you can apply to your own life. Now, here's Dr. Connie. Hi, everybody. I hope you all had a great week. Thank you so much for listening in. I'm excited about our show today and our special guest. What I'm going to do first is let me start off with my honorable mentions for this week. First person comes to mind is my dear and one of my oldest friends, Dr. Richard or Dick Ridenauer. This past week was his birthday, one of many great birthdays. He and his wife, Leslie, were recently honored at Marion College in Fond du Lac with a groundbreaking ceremony for their new science building. They're going to name it in honor of the Ridenauers, and I think that's incredible. He, by background, is a psychiatrist by training. He is a former two-star rear admiral in the U.S. Navy. He was medical officer of the Marine Corps. And when I was at the White House, Dr. Ridenauer, Admiral Ridenauer, was the commander of Bethesda Naval Hospital, so did a lot of work in helping us at the White House. He is, I really consider him a mentor, a dear friend. He and Leslie were on my previous season about four years ago when we did a special show on movies and Academy Award nominations, and he's a, he's one of those movie enthusiasts who you always ask, what are you watching right now? He's a foodie, uh, but I think most of all, he's just got a good heart. So happy birthday to you, my dear. Uh, <clears throat> Want to also reach out as an honorable mention to Susie Wiley in Scottsdale. She is a businesswoman and a dear friend. She owns a, uh, or she participates as, I call her a a dress dealer instead of a drug dealer. She sells uh, Doncaster clothes, designer clothes. And she recently had her trunk show this week, and I had to go over and check out her fashion. So thanks, Susie, for indulging me in my, my addiction. I want to say... Hello and a honorable mention to Chef Christine Kruger. She's my personal chef and caterer for a lot of the parties I like to throw because I don't cook. My husband cooks. She is a busy mom. She's got eight-month-old identical twin girls, Elizabeth and Alexandria. So what do you do? I mean, you've got identical twins. And then on top of that, you have a full-time catering business, which I think is remarkable. She did the catering at my ladies' luncheon this past Sunday. My daughter-in-law, Erin, who sells Shackley vitamins and products, featured Shackley's new youth line to my guests. We have about 12 ladies attending. It was a great time. The only male at that event was my six-month-old grandson, Alex. And it was sort of a marketing plan because you could see, uh, as a six-month-old, he had this beautiful, precious skin, clear and not a single wrinkle, and all the ladies were passing him around, so there's nothing like baby bait to make them interested. And as Erin was showing the different products, how it makes your skin youthful, we made the comment, well, baby Alex does that too. He uses that cream, and he's really five years old, so that's the reason his skin looks so great. And then finally this week, an honorable mention is a fascinating businessman I just met. His name is Damian Creamer. He's in Arizona. He's a former Marine, uh, served for about four years in the U.S. Marines in San Diego, where he's stationed in the 1990s, and I was living there at the time. He went on to college and then into the business world and became a very successful businessman. Now, what does he do? Well, in 2001, he founded Primavera Online High School. It's a charter school in Chandler, Arizona. It started with just a handful of curious students who are looking to break the mold of the traditional brick-and-mortar education, and Damien contracted with computer programmers how to design a customized learning experience, which led to the development of online learning for, for his schools. And he's been very successful. And as we talked the other day, we talked about the importance of purpose in life and how I really believe that's important. And he said something that made me pause and write it down. And I like to keep these quotes that people have in these different sayings. And what Damien said was, when we were talking about our life's purpose and goal was, you have to combine role with soul. In other words, your purpose in life. And what do you do? You know, what is your role, R-O-L-E? What role do you play? Is it consistent with what is in your soul, what your soul wants you to do? If those are both in sync, you've got a blessed life. Now, why do I say blessed? Why don't I say happy or happiness? 
And I think about that, is, and that's really the theme of, of today's show. Are you happy? Is happiness what you're seeking? Is that what everybody wants? I mean, you go to a wedding and they wish you and your husband to live happily ever after, you know, the end of the story, happily ever after. But does anyone ever achieve that? And if so, how do you achieve happiness? And once you have it, how long can you hold on to it? Well, if you look at studies of people who win the jackpot and people say, well, if only I won the lottery, I need so many millions of dollars, you know, I want to win a jackpot. Well, even the guys who do win the Powerball, mega millions of dollars, they're happy briefly, enough to go and go on those huge big shopping sprees and on those trips. But then after all is said and done and all the money is spent, they're back to who were they, they were before they cashed in that lottery check. I tell people I feel very blessed. I don't use the word lucky because lucky to me is almost sort of a random thing. I use the word blessed because I believe that when you say blessed, you're touched by the hand of God. And I look at my life. I I use this show in a lot of ways. It's maybe my own self-therapy when I talk about myself in hopes that other people out there will relate and say, oh my gosh, what she's going through is what I'm going through. But I'm really fortunate and I'm blessed that I enjoy fairly good health. I'm not physically active. I guess that's the only thing my husband will probably say need to do. But I, I should be more physically active. I used to be a runner and it's been a long time since I've done a half marathon. I don't work out daily, which I should. But what I do is I constantly move. I'm always moving, never sit still. I always feel that my brain is very good and I like to keep it that way. One of my sayings to my older patients, I tell people that my goal for old age is two things, no pain, and the other is to have a good brain. So no pain and good brain are really good goals. So what keeps my brain active is my full-time practice taking care of patients. I see them all the time in my office, and they keep in touch with me online and via email and via Skype. I go to medical conferences to stimulate my mind. I think being as a, a physician challenges us scientifically as well as clinically in that you're trying to solve problems. You're trying to get the history and diagnose what is going on with the patient, what tests do we order, what diagnosis, and most important all, how do you treat? But it isn't only feeding my brain through being a physician that's important, but I always believe in feeding the soul and the spirit. And I do that by contacting other souls and other people at work and and in my personal life. I'm very fortunate to have about 300 very interesting patients in their family who any number of them could be members of, could be on board as guests on my show because they have fascinating lives. So I never get bored. I've got a wonderful husband who makes sure we never have a boring time. My husband, John, is retired from the auto industry, and he describes retirement as this. He says that he wakes up every morning with nothing to do, and he goes to bed at night with half of it done. So in other words, he's busier than ever. He doesn't even realize how he had time to do all the things he wanted to do when he was working. Now it's just more more than ever. So part of what keeps John busy and active is his love of flying. And, for example, he is seriously, I tell him, seriously addicted to flying. For local flying operations in Arizona, he has a bush plane called a Husky, which can go up to 10,000 feet and flies over the beautiful countryside in Arizona by the mountains where we live. The other plane he loves to fly is his 2016 TBM 930 turboprop. So it's a single engine plane. It's made in France. This is the third plane we've had. It can go up to 31,000 feet altitude, up to 410 knots. It's pressurized. It seats four in the back. My goodness, it sounds like I'm doing a commercial. I should get royalties for this. Uh, It's a beautiful plane. We love it. Unfortunately, there is no bathroom in the back, but usually I tell people it flies fast enough to get to your destination so you can use the bathroom in the airport there. But it is my husband's love of flying and and my love of traveling with him and being around as his ground crew on the tarmac and his co-pilot in the air that brings us here this week to San Antonio, Texas. So this is where I'm broadcasting now in the San Antonio Hill Country. I'm atop the JW Marriott in a gorgeous room. I'm overlooking the golf course right now and the rolling hills of San Antonio. It's got a big view of the sky. There are clouds out, but the sky's mostly blue, and it's a beautiful day. 
And it is the love of the sky that brings me and John and about 100 plus pilots and their spouses to the TBM Owners and Pilots Association annual convention that's meeting here this weekend. The conference is really part training for the pilots and their spouses, but it's also, I think, in a lot of ways, it's a support group for aviation addicts. Uh, It is meant to educate them about safety issues, about their planes, how to fly safer, smarter, uh, knock on wood, there have been no accidents in at airplane in South America or, or North America this past year, which is a great record. And watching these people gather, it's really exciting for me to see that for people who share the sense of belonging. Now, when I do these trips with my husband, it's really tough. It is a challenge. And people will say, well, Connie, people would be dying to have your problems. But it is a challenge because I'm away from my home base in Scottsdale. My office manager and scheduler are answering calls while I'm away and sending me messages. And I respond and I email them throughout the day. So that's the advantage of 24-7, being in contact with our patients. The, The downside is I can't be there physically. So I've decided to change things next month. I'm welcoming to my practice a very talented family nurse practitioner. Her name's Lauren Siniskalki. She is finishing up her, her tour in the U.S. Air Force to come join me. And she's going to give me a lot of help in terms of taking care of 300-plus people and their family. She's going to be an extension of me, but in a lot of ways make us more current, more active in younger patients and populations. And I think every time you add a new person with great energy, uh, education, <clears throat> it's really going to help take care of patients better. In a lot of ways, it's going to release some of my separation anxiety from being away at the times I have to be away from the office. So having some help in the office, I think, after 12 years of being a solo practitioner is my way to take more time to take care of myself. I can work out more. I can go for those 5K, 10K runs like I used to love, you know, do all those things I tell my patients to do. And that is really tough for doctors. In a lot of ways, we find that we are the hardest people to treat when we have to realize I'm a patient too. I need to take good care of myself and balance myself out with eating properly and exercising. And so for this situation, I have to tell myself, I've got to take listen to my own orders. And, and that's important. One of the things I do to, to feed my brain and soul is I love to read. I have a stack of about 20 books at my bedside. I read them whenever I get to travel. And at night, I read various chapters through, throughout the evening until I finally fall asleep. But the book I read most recently, which I finished over a weekend, because it was one of those books you just couldn't put down. And I always, I always kid other authors. I said, you know, your book, I really couldn't put it down literally and figuratively. It was so compelling that I had to finish it cover to cover. And it's a book that I'm going to talk about uh, today with the author, but it was a book that when I read it, I had to tell my friends and I copy the cover of the book and I hand it out to patients and tell them, you got to go on Amazon, order this book. And the book I'm talking about is The Power of Meaning, Finding Fulfillment in a World Obsessed with Happiness. And the author is Emily Esfahani Smith. And we're going to do this interview live in three time zones. Emily is now Skyping me from Washington, D.C. I'm in San Antonio, and my Voice America crew is in Phoenix. So how's that? I was saying prayers that we would get through with this uh, connection here because I'm so used to uh, being in the studio to making it happen. But what I'll do before we go to our break, I'm going to read you a little bit of Emily's background, and then after our break, uh, come back, and we're going to launch into our interview. So about Emily's book, I heard about Emily Esfahani Smith's book in a review in the Wall Street Journal shortly after the book was released this year, and I ordered a copy right away on Amazon. Emily Esfahani Smith is a journalist. In her book, Emily argues that the unending pursuit of happiness has distracted us from what really matters, and that's the search for meaning in life. Emily draws on psychology, philosophy, and literature, as well as her own experiences to write about the human experience, and you'll find she writes beautifully. She's written for the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, The Atlantic, The the New Criterion, and other publications. She's also an editor of the Stanford University's Hoover Institution, where she 
advises the Ben Franklin Circles Project, which is a collaboration with the 92nd Street Y and Citizen University to build civic engagement in local communities. Welcome to our show, Emily, and we're going to bring you on board in a few minutes after our break. So stay tuned after our three-minute break to listen to author Emily Esfahani-Smith, the author of The Power of Meaning. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Who's your doctor? When I was looking for a doctor, I thought, which person gets the best care of all and whose doctor's credentials are the most carefully reviewed? Well, the answer was obvious. Who looks after the president of the United States? My doctor is the doctor who is taking care of three presidents and their families, Dr. Connie Mariano. I've heard about her. She's board certified in internal medicine and has been practicing medicine for over 30 years. She was at the White House for over nine years and traveled everywhere with the president. Dr. Connie is available to me 24 hours a day, seven days a week by email, cell phone, or Skype. And when I see her in her private office in Scottsdale, she and her staff always treat me like I'm the president. I'm going to call her office now and join her practice. Dr. Connie Mariano, this is the doctor American presidents and their families have trusted with their lives, and I trust you with mine. For information about Dr. Connie Mariano's private practice, you need to visit drcmariano.com. Are you ready to live younger, longer? Andrew and Aaron Stevens with Apply Everyday Health are partnered with a 100-year-old company to help you build health through natural approaches. Our scientists believe that the key to a healthy lifestyle lies within nature. By using ingredients proven to be safe and effective, our products provide nutrition guaranteed to change your life in a positive way. To find out how you can get the same top-of-the-line vitamins taken daily by Olympic athletes, astronauts, and the White House doctor herself, visit applyeveryday.com. How do you define work? Is it that mundane Monday through Friday place that seems to be sucking a third of your life out of you? Or have you made it a place of personal fulfillment, achievement, and purpose? If you are looking to make your work life the latter, tune in to Working on Purpose with Elise Cortez. There are all kinds of inspiring work-life stories told by people who have made work something to look forward to every day. Working on Purpose can be heard every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Empowerment. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. Friend us on Facebook to keep up with what's empowering the world. Voice America Empowerment. You are tuned in to House Calls with former White House physician, Dr. Connie Mariano. If you have a question or comment for our show today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's one 346 9141 You may also send an email to drconnieradio at gmail.com. That's drconnieradio at gmail.com. Now, back to House Calls with Dr. Connie. I'm so glad to be back here on the show, especially because we have a special guest today, uh, Emily Espahani Smith. She is the brilliant author, a book that I totally love. This is a book that I tell patients and friends to order on Amazon to read it. I write prescriptions for my patients to read it. It's the power of meaning, finding fulfillment in a world obsessed with happiness. Thanks, Emily, for tuning in today and for being our guest. Oh, thanks for having me, Dr. Connie. I have. I really love your book. Can you tell the audience how, what what inspired inspired you to write this great book? Of course. So um, I think that there's there's kind of two answers to it. The, the 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 first one is I I grew up with a little bit of an unusual background. I I grew up living in a Sufi meeting house in mm-hmm. Montreal. And um, Sufism is this spiritual, mystical practice that's associated with 
the whirling dervishes and the poet Rumi. And so living in the meeting house uh, meant that Sufis would come to our home twice a week to meditate. And like so many religious and spiritual paths, the, the purpose was to um, you know, grow closer to God, this, this kind of divine reality. And they did that with meditation, but also through service and practicing loving kindness, which is a long way of saying that I was surrounded by people from an early age who were leading meaningful lives and, and had clear answers to what the meaning of life was. Um, and then as I got older and we left the meeting house, I began to wonder, well, can you still have meaning outside of a religious context? Mm-hmm. What does that look like? That led me to studying philosophy and then positive psychology, which eventually gave way to this book because I realized in those studies that our culture is is so obsessed with happiness, but mm-hmm. that happiness is different from leading a meaningful life and that what people ultimately want and need is meaning. Absolutely. I think what impressed me when I read your book is that you write that the happiness industry continues to grow. But despite that, as a society, we're more miserable than ever. It's amazing. It's a paradox. And it's it's especially paradoxical when you consider that the happiness industry is growing. But that's not all. But life is actually getting better by so many objective measures. So more people are lifted out of poverty each day than ever before. Mm-hmm. You're more likely to, you know, uh, to live kind of a long and healthy life. We have every reason to be happy, and yet there is this rising tide of misery. Rates of depression mm-hmm. are going up. Rates of anxiety, the suicide rate, and I, what I think is really interesting is that when researchers crunch the numbers to try to figure out what's going, what's going on, they find that what predicts this despair is. Not a lack of happiness, actually, but a lack of having meaning in life. So we think, yeah, we think that the problem is that people aren't happy, and so we try to, you know, encourage them to be happier. But actually, it's that their lives don't feel meaningful to them. Can you tell the the listeners you mentioned in your book about the 20th century Harvard philosopher Robert Nozick with that experiment he did, the thought experiment? Remember that movie Matrix? Can you share a little bit about that? Of course. So um, I mentioned the field positive psychology, which is this this field that's devoted to studying the good life, and it was founded in in around 1998-2000. And Robert Nozick was a philosopher and one of the kind of early advisors to people in the field, and he really encouraged people in the field to not make positive psychology just the study of human happiness because he thought that there was more to life than being happy. And one of the ways that he proved that or tried to show it anyways was with this thought experiment. So he said, imagine that you could plug into a machine that would give you any experience that you wanted. And imagine that, you know, you could feel, you know, happiness and pleasure in the machine, you know, hour after hour, day after day. And, you know, if you, you can always unplug from the machine to kind of think about what more experiences you can have, and then you can plug right, right back in and keep on experiencing those happy things. And then he asks, you know, would you do it? Would you have this matrix-like existence? And I think the answer, obviously, to most people is no. And Nozick said that the reason the answer is no is because you feel happy, but the happiness isn't earned. You know, it, it's it's meaningless. There's nothing that undergirds it. It's just this superficial feeling that um, that isn't kind of worth anything more. That's incredible, I, and I see it in my population. Actually, I have a very unusual practice where I have billionaires and millionaires, and I don't necessarily see it in the people who achieve their wealth. It's the people who have benefited without the work. And un- unfortunately, are, it's the kids who inherit lots and lots of money. But it was like, here, here's $50 million and go enjoy yourself. It's like, well, wait a minute, I didn't earn it. But what am I going to do with this? And so it's you're right. I think from what you can say, you can you can buy the happiness, but do you have the meaning? I think what really struck me as I was reading your book, you described the four pillars of meaning, and I quote them often to my patients and friends. Can you tell the audience about the four pillars? So when I when I was kind of working through this question of you know what is happiness what is meaning and you know and then this idea that we should be 
pursuing meaning instead of happiness. My next question was, well, what then are the building blocks of a meaningful life? What do we have to have in our lives in order for them to feel meaningful to us? And so that set me on this journey, basically, where I you know, interviewed people from all over the country, all walks of life, and read through lots of research and philosophy and literature um, about meaning to see if there were any patterns that emerged. And indeed, there were, you know, as I kind of brought the research together, I realized that there were these four pillars that kept coming up again and again in the stories and the research. And they are first, belonging. So having a sense of belonging, being in relationships where you feel valued for who you are and where you value others. Two, purpose, which is feeling like you have something worthwhile to do, doing things that, you know, make you proud, work that makes you proud, for example. Uh, The third is transcendence. So these are those moments where you feel connected to something much bigger, whether it's God or nature, and it's they're kind of awe-inspiring moments that shift your perspective and put you in touch with what really matters. And then finally is storytelling, which is the story that you tell yourself about your own life, that narrative that you craft, how you understand your experiences. That's incredible. I I love to quote all those. And I think it's a great exercise when people say, how can I enhance my life? How can I make it better? And I said, look at the four pillars that, that you talk about in your book. And, you know, when I read books and articles, I often ask myself out loud, and this is what my teenage kids would say, well, so this means what to me? And, and in other words, it's finding how is this book relevant? So your book has touched me because it, it supports in a lot of ways what I've always thought was true, but it, it puts it in such a great way of, of doing that and, and how you really have to have those four things to make a meaningful life. It really does make a, a difference in terms of having purpose and the healthy storytelling that's so important because I see that in my patients who suffer from mental illness. I look at the storytelling that they have. And, you know, you talk about how we all strive for, for, for being happy, and yet, you know, we, we're miserable with that. I see a lot of that happening. Now, as you were writing your book, and how long did it t- take you to write this book? Let's see. It took me about uh, f- three or four years well, to, to write it. I was researching it for longer than that, I would say. Now, was that part of a, a thesis you were doing for advanced degree, or was that in addition to your journalism work? Well, so when I when I was studying positive psychology, that was in graduate school. So I received my master's in it. And at the same time, I was working full time as a magazine editor and journalist. And as I was learning the about this different research in positive psychology about meaning and happiness, I started writing about the 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 findings. And one of the studies that was new at the time that I wrote about was specifically about the difference between a happy life and a meaningful life. And the study's findings were somewhat provocative. So one of the findings was that a happy life was associated with being a taker, whereas a meaningful life was associated with being a giver. And so so I wrote about that for The Atlantic and used the life of the Holocaust survivor, Viktor Frankl, mm-hmm. who wrote the book, Man's Search for Meaning, a beautiful book. And, um, and then that article ended up kind of going viral. And that became the basis, really, for this, this book that I ended up writing. Wow, that's incredible. Were there, when you were writing the book, Emily, were there like these aha moments as you were doing your research? I, I think I think so. I think one of them was that, you know, there's this myth, I think, in our culture that to lead a meaningful life, you have to do something extraordinary, like, you know, found, you know, become the founder of the next major company like mm-hmm. Facebook or end the humanitarian crisis or you know, be working on a cure towards cancer, uh, you know, or do something like, uh, to take another type of example, you know, go to a monastery, go to the mountaintop. And what I found is that, you know, most of us aren't going to do things like that. Of course, we're going to lead ordinary lives. And yet, people can still find plenty of meaning in in lives like that. And so, um, and I think that was, that was an important takeaway for me, because I interviewed so many people who, were disappointed by how their lives had unfolded. They felt like they hadn't accomplished what they wanted to. 
um, that, that therefore their lives weren't meaningful enough because they'd wanted to achieve this level of fame or, or notoriety mm-hmm. and they didn't. And, and then some of the ones who I interviewed came to that point, but then moved beyond it to see, well, actually, my life is meaningful because I have all these roles. I'm giving back in all these different ways. And, um, and that's enough to satisfy me. So this idea that you can kind of find lowercase meaning and meaning versus capital M meaning, I think is really important. I think you're absolutely right. I think people say, well, I'm not, I'm not a success in this life. I didn't run a multi-billion dollar company or I didn't cure cancer. And we look at those and think, well, that that's not our job. I mean, that wasn't perhaps what we were not meant to do in this life. We're meant to do something else that we came into this life for another reason, being being a parent to a certain child, to bring them into the life or to touch certain lives along the way. And you, that is so true. And I think that's so important that you say that. Don't think, oh, my gosh, because I didn't cure cancer or I haven't started off a huge startup company, made billions of dollars. I'm a failure. Absolutely not. It's your meaning can come from so many things. I, I think of my patients, my, uh, my oldest patient died about a month ago. She was 102. And she was uh, her maiden name was Schmuckers, so she came from that family. Yeah. But she had a long, good life. She was a mother of three children. The oldest was in their eighties, and she was a wonderful wife to her husband until he died of dementia. And at the end, she was ready to go. She had accomplished what she did. It, w- it was her time that they talked about that her grandfather, who founded the company, said, "It's too bad you're not a girl. We would have let you run the company, but it wasn't meant for her. It wasn't the time. It wasn't her." place. And again, that that's so important to hear. Now, as I look at your book, and it's so beautifully done, and, and all the research was, what was the hardest part about writing it? The chat, so I mentioned that there are these four pillars of meaning, one of them is storytelling. And that particular chapter was, was very challenging to write. Um, because when I wrote the book, I had this intuition that storytelling was important for meaning. You know, human beings are storytelling animals. Stories are a way that we kind of make meaning, take disparate pieces of information and bring them together. But what I didn't realize until I really started getting into the the writing and the research was how much it's about your own story, the story that you tell yourself about yourself and how that reflects how you understand yourself and the world that you live in. And that you can change that story, too, while, you know, respecting the facts of your life, obviously, but that you can edit and interpret the story just by, you know, focusing in on different things that happened, choosing to end the story at a different point in your life. And I think that was hard because I didn't realize that we are our own storytellers. And when I talk to people about this book, it's the pillar that I think that I found intrigues them the most. And I think because they, too didn't necessarily think that they're, they're, they are the storytellers of their own lives as well. We don't realize that we have, that we're doing this automatically. And so I think that was hard just because it was the pillar that I had the least experience with. But now I see that it's one of the most powerful of the pillars. I see that a lot in my patient population. I'm For many of them, I'm their last doctor. So I wind up signing their death certificates and the majority of my patients are over 65, so my oldest one's 92 right now. And as they are in that final chapter, as they look back, they're very reflective. I always ask them, "Do do you have you written your life story? Have you written something down that you want to you want your kids and grandkids to remember you by?" There are some patients who will write their obituary. They they okay. there are some controlling patients who like them. That's fine, but I really think it's how you look back and reflect. And, and how you present yourself and how you come to terms with your life and, and the story you tell. And I really think that's such a powerful thing, whether you come through as a victim or a victor or how you, you view all that. I, I, I just love how you do that. As I look at what you've written, are there major take-home messages? There's so many great messages, but can you narrow down the major take-home messages you'd like our readers to come away with? Yeah, I think there... I'll, I'll say two, and one of them picks up directly from what you were saying, which is that it is so important to to start crafting that life story, whether it's just by keeping a journal where you reflect on the day, the events of the day, or actually just sitting down and thinking about what the you know what the events were, the the the, the major events of your life, and how they shaped you. 
And I want to bring it back to what you were saying about people at the end of their lives, because there is this body of research on what's called dignity therapy that has people at the end of their lives write down their story. And what they find is that doing that and then presenting that story to their family members or to the people in their lives that they love, that it, it, it really brings them a sense of peace. So that terror that we face as we approach death um, alleviates for them and they feel this sense of peace and this kind of readiness, I guess, to, to leave the world. Um, so, so, there, so there is this real, really powerful effect of writing down that story, especially towards the end of your life. The second thing is, um, and I kind of hinted at this earlier, so meaning is really about connecting and contributing to something beyond yourself. It's not about you and what you want. And, and you know, and so when you, when you have people who are struggling to find meaning or, or struggling with mental health, um, or even if they're not, but they just want to make their lives meaningful, just doing something, anything to get you outside of your own head, whether it's, you know, paying attention to your child, helping your child with their homework, volunteering, um, you know, going to work, doing something that you're proud of, things like that. That's incredible. I think your advice is so wonderful. We're going to be closing in a few minutes for our break, but I, I want to once again thank you, Emily. This, it was, went by really quickly. We've got to have you come back later in the future when you write your next book, but I want to thank you for being our guest today, and I want to remind all the listeners to go out and get Emily Esfahani Smith's book, The Power of Meaning. It's an incredible book, and I think in so many ways life-changing and life-enhancing. So thanks again, Emily. I appreciate it, and, and please keep writing. You write beautifully. Take care. Thanks. Thank you. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Are you ready to live younger, longer? Andrew and Aaron Stevens with Apply Everyday Health are partnered with a 100-year-old company to help you build health through natural approaches. Our scientists believe that the key to a healthy lifestyle lies within nature. By using ingredients proven to be safe and effective, our products provide nutrition guaranteed to change your life in a positive way. To find out how you can get the same top-of-the-line vitamins taken daily by Olympic athletes, astronauts, and the White House doctor herself, visit applyeveryday.com. Who's your doctor? When I was looking for a doctor, I thought, which person gets the best care of all and whose doctor's credentials are the most carefully reviewed? Well, the answer was obvious. Who looks after the president of the United States? My doctor is the doctor who is taking care of three presidents and their families. Dr. Connie Mariano. I've heard about her. She's board certified in internal medicine and has been practicing medicine for over 30 years. She was at the White House for over nine years and traveled everywhere with the president. Dr. Connie is available to me 24 hours a day, seven days a week by email, cell phone, or Skype. And when I see her in her private office in Scottsdale, she and her staff always treat me like I'm the president. I'm going to call her office now and join her practice. Dr. Connie Mariano. This is the doctor American presidents and their families have trusted with their lives, and I trust you with mine. For information about Dr. Connie Mariano's private practice, you need to visit drcmariano.com. We all have unique experiences and outlooks when it comes to leadership and team building, yet sometimes we clash, even when trying to achieve the exact same goals. Check out Unleash Your Inner Goldilocks, How to Get It Just Right. Your host is Dr. Cass Henry. A shared journey equals success, and every human interaction has the power to achieve this success by working together. Tune in every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings of the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our wall. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. You are 
tuned in to House Calls with former White House physician, Dr. Connie Mariano. If you have a question or comment for our show today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. You may also send an email to drconnieradio at gmail.com. That's drconnieradio at gmail.com. Now, back to House Calls with Dr. Connie. Thanks again to our special guest today, Emily Esfahani Smith, who wrote the book, The Power of Meaning. I really love that book, and I encourage all you to look it up on on Facebook, uh, on her page, to follow her in her speaking engagement. She's done TED Talks, so you can look at that as a podcast. So please read her book. You can get it on Amazon. I really think it changes how you look at life and perspective, and it can apply to it. And I've every time I, I quote the four pillars of meaning that she cites, it really helps me and in, in the things that I can do with my patients. Now, when I started this second season of my show, it was in response to the stress and anxiety we've all been feeling in the current news cycle. I realized a lot of the anxiety and stress that comes from being just too plugged into media. And I don't know about you, but I don't go anywhere without my cell phone or my iPhone. Now, it has really become my constant companions with me everywhere. I rely upon it for my livelihood in the terms of my medical practice because my patients call me 24-7. They email me. They Skype me. We FaceTime each other. So I'm always in contact with them. But I also rely upon it for the news because I want to stay tuned. I want to see know what's going on. I want to stay connected. And it keeps me entertained, right? I There's an app that my son and his wife have. Uh, that are entered into it's called tiny beans and every day they post at least one photo or a a video of my precious grandchildren and I'm addicted to that I'm always checking it and my day is either good or bad depending on whether I've gotten an entry into tiny beans of a photograph of my grandkids so I, I it just becomes so much a part of my life but the thing about being in communication with your cell phone having with you all the time it definitely keeps you entertained but it also distracts you and it can stress you out in that case it does that for me so I wonder do you experience that too I mean are you that reliant on your iPhone your cell phone that you need it you love it uh, but you can't uh, be without it and you find that that's such a point that it's that one of those strange love-hate relationships where you love it but then you hate it because it distracts you and it stresses you out do you ever wonder how often you touch your your phone? I mean, they did an average. Uh, they did a study on how the average, how often the average person checks their cell phone. Can you guess? An average is 150 times a day, and that constant connection and checking makes us addicted to what addicted to our phone, and then it makes us want more. And they have uh, research studies from, there's a professor of psychiatry at UC San Francisco, Dr. Christina Mangurian, and she writes that it is the repeated exposure that is the problem. Going without your smartphone, if you try to do it cold turkey, can actually trigger a burst of stress hormone, cortisol, and induce that fight or flight response that only settles down by checking your phone again. So it's almost like you're withdrawing from social media from your phone. So what's a person to do? You know, how can you be smart about using your smartphone? Well, Dr. Mongorian recommends limiting the number of alerts you have and turning off your phones for a couple of hours before going to bed. And I am really notorious for not doing that. Uh, I don't mind prescribing others to do that, but it's really hard for me and I have to work on it. But, you know, do you keep your phone on your nightstand? I do because I'm checking to see if patients need to email me. Uh, a couple hours before, well, probably about 30 minutes before I'm ready to sleep, I don't check, you know, but I usually sleep later at night. So do you check your email before you go to bed? <clears throat> do you check Facebook before you go to sleep? Experts say that this causes more stress as well as insomnia. And so what are you supposed to do? They say recharge your phone in another part of the house overnight and then set limits about upon how often you check in on the news or social media and I really find that it's, I, when I'm doing that, I, I think I'm what they call trolling or trawling for tears. It's like you're taking a net out there and you're looking for bad news to see what happens. It's it's almost like a fix. You're getting addicted to excitement or the adrenaline that, that it induces. There are also other studies that came out about the about the smartphones uh, at another uh, university. 
dumber because they distract you. They studied students who were taking tests and whether they had their cell phone with them or not. And they found that university students who had their smartphone with them on their body or, or on their in their purse or in their backpack in a lecture hall and were taking tests performed worse than students who had their phones locked away in another room because it's distraction. So how do you break the cycle with 24-7 news media? Well, number one, we talked about trying to wean yourself off being reliant on your phones, but you've got to fill it with something. You know, you think about the news media, and I've worked with the news media during my nine years of the White House and have been interacting with them since then, and it is because it's a 24-7 news network, you got to fill it with something, right? And one of the things we used to say at the White House, that no news is definitely good news. You don't want to be on the front page of the news. And then if you are on the front page of the news and it's saying horrible things about you, because usually that's what sells and that's what people love to hear, just hang on, just take a breath, because sooner or later, something just as bad will come onto the news and replace you and it won't be so important anymore. So my prescription for you is this. Limit your access to negative energy, in, be it the form of your cell phone or your frequent 150 times or more contacts with your phone. If you can avoid that, that would be great. Unplug from the phone periodically. Unplug from TV, radio, unless it's my show. You can stay on that. That's very important to keep that up. If it's bad news or get your heart rate up, then turn it off. And you'll probably be the best judge of that. If you're finding out, oh, I'm getting excited, I'm getting upset, I'm yelling at the TV, I'm yelling at the radio, uh, you probably ought to turn that off. It's not good for you. And I tell people, order a copy of Emily Asfahani Smith's book, The Importance of Meaning. Ask yourself as you're going through the four pillars of meaning she writes about, how do these apply to you? And those are any good book answers the question, this means what to me? How does this apply to what I do in my life? Number one, what is your life's purpose? What are you meant to do in this life? And as Damien Creamer asks, is it the role with the soul? How are those combined with your role? Belonging is important. Who do you belong with? Who do you belong Who are your peeps, as my kids would say, your people? Storytelling honors and validates your life story and experience. How do you tell your life story when someone says, tell me how you met so-and-so? And And one of the things I used when I meet couples and I ask them about how they met their spouse is, tell me how you two met. And when I do that, I watch various things as they're telling me their love story. I watch their body language. I watch their tone. I watch the expression of how they met. And if you can tell, there's love in the air. So if you always wondered about people, I always say, well, how did you two meet? And they get excited or they can go, oh, it was a bad decision. So, But the storytelling part's important. It's important because it validates your life. How do you tell your story? Are you the victim or are you the survivor, someone who goes through such tough times and triumphs? You know, you want to be the survivor. You want to be the, vic- the victor, not the victim. The transcendence part is challenging, and I was trying to think <clears throat> examples of wh- how we had transcendence in the most recent most recent months. And and if you can remember, a few months ago we had well, it was actually August twenty one, my sister's birthday. That we had that total eclipse, and people for just a moment, for a few minutes, would stop and gather, look at this amazing phenomena, and for a moment were united. And I think it's because. It was transcendent. It was something beyond our control that was part of the magic and splendor and beauty in life. There was no politics attached to it. There was not they versus us. It was something that united people. And I think that was important. I think the transcendence part, for other reasons, is a challenge. I I look at my patient population, and there are people who are millionaires and billionaires that I take care of, and they have, I can see how they have their story of their life purpose, that's what built their, 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 their successful company, their belonging, obviously, to your family, their country club, their groups, storytelling, a lot of them will write their book, and and I tell people who don't think they've they've achieved greatness, you know, how you define that. You don't have to be a billionaire. You don't have to be in the cover of Time magazine. You don't have to, to be the latest, hottest thing. But you're important in your own way. But what is your story? And and I think what Emily talked about in her interview is about what she calls the dignity 
dignity therapy part. And that's something that I encourage all my older patients as they're doing their advanced directive and doing their desires for end of care is write the story of your life, that your life had value, your life had meaning. There are people who were touched by your life and everyone has a great story to tell. And some common themes that we share in life, definitely the hardships, the difficulties, falling in love, uh, being in pain, suffering. These are the human condition that we share. And then when others share that as well, we figure we're not so alone. But when you look at transcendence, what about me will live on? What will people say when I'm gone? I've had one of my, several of my patients insist that they're going to write their obituaries because they want to make sure they, they put the right things in there. Mm-hmm. But it makes you think about that. What would you want said about you? And I remember having prepared my mom's eulogy about three years ago. And just looking back, I think she always said, well, in as much as I didn't achieve this, and she would compare herself to me or my siblings. And I said, Mom, your purpose was to bring us into this world and be an incredible mother and a, and a helpmate and a partner to my father and to bring the love and the kindness you did. That, that, is, that was your purpose. And to bring such love was her, her reason for being here. And then from her to have the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren that we've experienced. So a lot of people don't realize the significance of their being and how they touch so many lives. I I think of one story that one of my patients told me. It was a patient of mine who struggled with alcoholism. And he lived in New York at the time. He worked on Wall Street. And he had decided in the throes of his alcoholism and his depression that he was going to commit suicide on his lunch break. I guess he couldn't commit suicide when he was working because people relied upon him. So what he did was he walked uh, from Wall Street along the streets of New York back to his apartment, and he was going to kill himself at his apartment. And as he was walking the streets of New York, he said, in a lot of ways, a silent prayer to himself, if I get one person to acknowledge me that I exist for a reason, then I won't do that. I won't kill myself. And as he was walking across the street, you know, in New York, busy streets, nobody makes eye contact. They're the hustle and bustle. He looked up as he was crossing the street, and there was a woman who was crossing the street the opposite side, facing him. And he looked up at her, and she smiled at him and said, have a nice day. And it was that simple, kind gesture to a stranger that made him realize, I need to live on. I need to hang on. And in a lot of ways, why do I do this show? And it is perhaps that one person out there who needs to hear the message that your life has a purpose, you have value, and that you're here for a reason, and you must embrace your meaning, find your meaning and purpose, and live on and make the best if you can in your life and to seek the joy there. So lots of deep questions, a lot to think about. But again, I thank you for listening today. This has been a, a, a very meaningful show. Obviously, we're not using the word meaning too many times, but in a lot of ways a good show because I think it has some good material to to share with her book. So next week, we've got a fun show. It's our beauty secret show, and I'm going to bring on board my hairdresser and my nail tech friends. And we're going to share secrets we share with our hairdresser and nobody else, including your doctor. So you're going to be really surprised about that show. So thanks for listening in and have a great weekend and God bless you all. Thank you again for joining us this week for House Calls with Dr. Connie Mariano. We'll be back next Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Have a terrific week. Thank you.